Now, why aren't any or all of these things very common operations, commonplace everyday operations in a society? And the answer is, do you know anywhere where you can go to find out about any one of them? No. And it's certainly not your local employment office because the guy behind the counter is unemployable. The guy who works in the employment office has never in his whole life, he's probably gone from school to public service, he's never in his whole life had to develop an employment opportunity for himself. Now I know, because I was unemployed for three days once in my life, uh, as an as a exercise, uh, I went into the employment office and I stayed in there all day from beginning to end of the day, all day for three days, constantly requesting employment and clowning about. <laughs> I didn't leave the place. I spoke to everybody who came in for a job, organised them into small groups, sang songs, <laughs> went, went to the counter, played the part of the employment officers. On the evening of the third day, I got a job. Where do you think it was? Across the counter in the employment office, right in the back file room right in the back folder, as far from public side as they could get me. That's the sort of activity, Bill, the register that a permaculture group could involve itself with. What would they need to do? They would have to start what we are calling land access office. I think you can think of whatever you like. Open opportunity office. What we're really saying is there's no shortage of land, even within the urban context, <coughs> I don't give a damn what city we've assessed. There's, there's roughly three acres of spare land per head of population in every city from New York to Sydney. No shortage of land within the urban context. There's no shortage of land outside the urban fringe. There's no shortage of strategies to connect the land to the people in meaningful ways. And as far as rights and agreements go over land, it's just so wide open, it's incredible. And there's probably really no real shortage of entrepreneurs and people with investment capital to start insert rights and energy rights running. But unless there is a place for people to go to work out these deals where you have lists of people with untaken up rights, lists of people who want jobs, lists of entrepreneurs who will organise capital, merchant bankers who will get the capital framework together, lists of people who want things like the orchid societies who want the man ferns in, in the United States, I don't, I don't think you ever supply them with enough ferns, uh, then unless you've got those people, then, then all of this sits there. The resources themselves really become pollutants in the society. You and I would agree when you look around this town there's plenty to do. And yet, at the same time, there's plenty to do, there are people unemployed. The difference between that is this. Isn't there also a conflict with that and your ecology, the fact that um, gullies rely on those tree ferns and you might want to sort of strip quite a few out, considering they only grow, say, two inches a year or two inches a year? Not only all of Tasmania, outside the National Reserve, all of Tasmania is lacked to woodchip companies. In all of Tasmania is led to woodchip companies. Unless you get a, they're going to knock them down. It's all well, they are knocking them down as we sit here. 
You can go and have a look. You've been and had a look at it, haven't you? I've been coming every year for 20 years. Very upsetting. Fine furniture woods are being burnt as we sit here. They're being bulldozed. Millions of bloody man ferns are going. Orchids, you name it. Exactly the same in Rockhampton. Hundreds of thousands of tropical orchids are being cleared in front of farmers' bulldozers and up to Cooktown. Hundreds of thousands. It's illegal to collect the orchids off the trees because they're protected. However, you can clear a thousand acres and destroy, you know, three million of them. <laughs> uh, that's, you get total tax rebate for doing that. Until such policies change, until people start to value the orchids above the bloody cattle because they're of higher value, then you need to glean. And the need to glean is right here and has been here probably for the last 50 years. And given that you do glean, suddenly another value comes into the forest. And people might look at not bulldozing the understory. They might look at actually looking at the true accessible value of the product. In Tasmania, the only time that's been done is by the urging of the Beekeepers Association on Leatherwood. And they proved that the value from Leatherwood honey was greater than that that the people of Tasmania got from knocking the forest down. And therefore, all areas with leather wood have been reserved from cutting. And we are back again in exactly the same place as we get to with lead in soils and with air pollution. If you're not going to use a resource, then you are not going to have it used properly. If you're not going to use wallaby, then they're going to go on being poisoned. And there are at least 10 full-time agricultural department poisoning teams. What they're poisoning this year is deer. <coughs> deer haven't been utilised in Tasmania. They've been inefficiently shot in season. Seeds have mainly been restricted to bucks. And so now they've reached proportions that are commonly poisoned. And uh, what you're actually laying furrows for is rabbits in deer country to kill the deer. Because it's not illegal to lay furrows for deer. Therefore, you lay furrows right through your deer areas for rabbits. Until we get the right to glean materials which are being laid waste to, therefore they have no value. Dennis McCarthy in Perth has started the Land Access Office. Land Access Office needs some pass-out literature. It needs some peripheral lawyers. It needs some real estate people to be interested. In fact, it's not a bad idea to have them pretty well permanently attached to it one way or another and it needs some entrepreneurs now I'm going to give a course in Los Angeles in May I said I'll never go back to America and give another course now I specified people going I will not talk to anybody who's not a banker a real estate person or an active entrepreneur or a financier but I don't want anyone else in that course at all because if we can get a group of people like that on deck all of us have work all of us have money and all of us have plenty of jobs to do because what we lack are those skills. Uh, I feel as though I lack them. However, what I've set up uh, with a group is with a farmer on Flinders Island, a real estate agent, a lawyer in Hobart, real estate agent in Victoria, farmer on Flinders and myself, an unholy alliance to do this farm for a a sort of common work model. Now, I don't know whether it'll work, I'll tell you in a month's time. 
And if it's going to work, we're going to be able to pre-sell it. Now, I need these two guys. And the farmer is very happy about it. He uh, has to sell, has to sell because he's, his marriage broke up and his wife demands money. So we'll pay his wife. And then it, it's going to be developed. A lot of developers are hammering around. We've got the front running on the development. He wants it to be a permaculture development because he's, he himself approves of permaculture. Uh, how it will turn out, we don't know. We look at the property, it's 500 or 800 acres or something. It obviously suits a small group who want out of Melbourne and uh, that's where we'll be aiming for it. And if we can set out a prospectus that's reasonable for that land, then we will sell it before we ever touch it. You'll have to put 30% down before you have a chance at, at, at getting a place. And that, with that 30%, we'll make it. That's it. We will make the place for the 30% down. So we should involve ourselves in these activities. I used to work with this guy, right? We used to buy large properties for German and uh, Iranian and Saudi Arabian people who wanted places. And we set up some sort of ethical base on which we would look for them. And we get sick of it because they keep making unethical sideways slips on us. So we put our heads together and said, well, let us do it. We, we can hold on to the ethics here. So we've decided we'll do it. And this lawyer, who I've worked with for years, handles some of the trust accounts, and we handle some of the trust accounts. And we found the farmer, so we don't have to put the money out for the land, only just to, for his wife. And you find plenty of farmers like that, who will put their farms in and become part of a developmental team. The guy himself will get work out of it, employment out of it, profit out of it and may even end up living there if he likes it. I might live there myself if I like it a lot. It looks really paradisical. <laughs> Probably we can afford to do all the things we couldn't afford to do. We can lay down the, the proper orchards, uh, uh, proper processing machinery, everything can be put into that. How would you advertise yourself? Send a prospectus to the country? Just to people. Just have meetings in Melbourne. It's easy. It's like that. I call a couple of meetings, charge $3 a head and have my fares paid, advertise it for a specific group of people who want out and say, look, okay, you got, I've got a proposition for you. All I want is 30% of your money now. And we'll put it in trust. We'll look after it. You know, the lawyer will explain how we'll handle the money. The real estate agent will explain how we'll handle the land. He will dicker with the council and get the right to do it and we'll do it. Or we won't. We don't do this one, but we'll certainly do one. What you've really got to do, and what we're going to find out when we start land access offices is, what do people really want, and how do they want it? And uh, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people want some connection to the country, but they do not want to be farmers. And I think that's a fair statement. And I think farming is a minor occupation on land. And it may be, you know, the rightful sort of occupancy and use is, is a better occupation. We get more forest back on the land by putting people who are not farmers out there because they appreciate the values of forest and wildlife than we will by uh, leaving it to farmers to look after those things entirely. They can't do so because the economic pressures don't let them do it. Then in, when it comes to the limited liability companies, I don't think they're going to be so successful here as are in America because your average uh, Australian doesn't think of themselves as an investor. And yet, 
the majority of us can get 500 bucks together if we really want to. The majority of us can if we really want to, and I don't care how poor most of us are. You can take a flying leap at a job and come out with 500 bucks after a few weeks if you really want to. So what we've floated from the Whidbey Island group is the idea of a $1,500 to $5,000 investment group to buy and develop uh, run-down land. Now what we're looking for is something entirely, we're looking for the worst land in the worst condition at the lowest price. We're looking for the most gullied, eroded, arid, destroyed land. Uh, because the whole thrust of the developmental group is to reconstitute lands. We probably go for mine land because you can get strip mine land in the United States and we think we may have the land given to us if we put enough moral pressure on uh, Peabody's coal company. Do you know that song at all, uh, Daddy, will you take me? I went to that place, to uh, Paradise. It's in Virginia. There's a little town called Paradise that was by, by a river with uh, fantastic uh, deciduous forests, willows, lots of fish all around it. And uh, Mr Peabody came along with his coal munchers, took every hill away, all the river away, <laughs> all the trees away and the whole town away. So there's a little song they sing down there and I, that's where I heard it, in Virginia. And I said, yeah, yeah, let's have a song. Daddy, won't you take me back to Moolenberg County? down the green river where paradise lay i fear my son that you're too late in asking mr peabody's coal train has hauled it away <laughs> on it goes so um, that might work in australia and a land access office might undertake uh, developments from relatively modest investors like ourselves who are not too worried about whether we get that $500 back. What we are really worried about is seeing land at greatly deteriorated condition, continuing in that condition, like all the land north of Adelaide and the Wallachra. And we might put our personal efforts, some of our capital, into restoration of that land and see what we can get for it after we finish. It's sort of a risk idea. Now, I can tell you, when you float one of these, I'll, ha I'll go and make 500 bucks and put it in your company if you are going to reconstitute land. You know, I, I, I'll make no bones about it. I've told everybody who's going to float one, I'll have 500 bucks in it, and I don't give a damn if I see that 500 bucks again. You promised Well, I'll give you a thousand. <laughs> Where are you going to work? No, this is the one up north. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll have 1500 in that if I've got a dog for weeks to get it, right? A lot of us who are relatively poor have promised a grand just to see the Wallachra in any section of it come back because we figure that what that might do is spin off other limited liability companies. So, OK, this land didn't look too good, but these techniques seem to have brought it back to health and it sold at $400 an acre, and those guys got it at 20 And uh, boy, that looks like good money. And that point, we can drop out. <laughs> we'll leave it to them. We're no longer really, we don't want to become entrepreneurs ourselves in any ongoing sense. We want to start the process of entrepreneurial land rehabilitation. 
land access office then, I think is essential. Now that has to reach people, it has to have literature, it has to have a few radio programs, it has to say what it can do, and it has to sit down and think out its strategy set. And uh, those five are enough, but if you really look around a long way through literature, you'll find several more. There are minor ones. Ken Kern told me about one the other day that he's operating. Uh, way down the line here, strategy number 19. <laughs> uh, <coughs> it was, I think, on my strategy set. A Kern inheritance system. Ken's getting old, so is his wife. They have no children dependent on them. They're, some of their own children are fairly well off, as indeed are my children. Uh, he proposes, in fact, he's in process, of selling his property to a young couple really interested in the history of the property and what Ken Kern has done, interested in the continuation of Kern's work and in the preservation of it and, and its continuation. So what happens is Ken's, Ken and people like him, myself, starting to die, so we taper out. He, uh, he like a lot of older people, will die poor. He never made much money. And now, what he proposes is some stage here to sell somebody who tapers in. And that what happens is the transfer of some money across here until his death. And that the people start a, 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 a process of access to the property that they come in to start with. Uh, and he's drawn this up legally and he's in process. So that as uh, older people with nobody to leave the land to and with no potential of making money uh, from their own efforts anymore. Now, boy, you'll walk around the country and you just look for bad fences and you walk in there and you'll find some old codger on his own, totally incapable of keeping up his property but with nowhere else to go and no other chance of income. So what you do with your land access office is set up a a graduated acquisition system with a young couple who are prepared to put in part of their salary to supporting this older person to start to put effort into the farm to bring it back into production which they can share with the older person and then gradually to move in and all debts are cancelled at death no matter how far that process has gone. I said to Kern, this is an invitation to murder. <laughs> well he said murder is not such a bad death anyhow. <laughs> Is anyone doing this? Yes, he's doing it. Well, really? Well, he said he said he knows of people who are starting to do it more generally too. He he didn't originate the idea. Hmm. It happened in town here with an, a house uh, and a single old woman. She sold to the young people renting next door in Slumsden, and they began to do up her place. Before, before she actually went to the old people's home. She had her application in for the home. That means that she has an ongoing uh, bit of capital to play with in her last days. They've got a place cheaply. They're secure in knowing they've got a place to go to. They have a finite time to wait, five, ten years. Nobody's going to live that long before they've got to be nursed or looked after. And it passes across with some continuity. Unfortunately, she didn't pass across with any sort of continuity of the garden. They went in and cleaned the garden out. But Ken Kern is. There are conditions on this side. Mm. Mm. Commonwealth system is, is, is 
<coughs> basically, what's the word? It's indestructible. That's totally different. You've got a lot of people, you've got a corporate group involved in seeing this place go on and change. It's not an individual ownership. Totally different situation. I don't think Ken Kern's property is suited to a Commonwealth system. It's, it's just possible that two people in good health can, can make a living on it. It's on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> most, most of it's vertical. It has good energy income potential, that's all. It doesn't really have a lot of production potential, although he started a fairly extensive orchard. So um, you could set up inheritance systems so that young people can start to buy in with some degree of continuity to what old people... I know dozens of people who would leap at this chance. I'm thinking of a guy at Myrtleford in Victoria who spent 40 years of his life developing uh, walnut and... Uh, Orchard. I've selected Australian walnuts. He's got the Wandanoo Wonder, Wonder, and uh, whose son has promised him faithfully that on his desk he will bulldoze the lot and put it back to sheep. Uh, and yet, already that place is unique. It makes very good income from walnuts. He set up a drying situation for the walnuts, a storage situation for the walnuts. He doesn't like his son. He doesn't like his wife. They don't like him. They've always thought that he should have continued in sheep and never started in walnuts. There's been a fight going on in the family. They've promised him faithfully that as soon as he's dead, if they inherit it, they'll bulldoze the whole bloody lot. So he, he said to me, I wish I could sell out to someone who would look after it and give them the money, give his wife and son the money. So this guy would jump at it and he wouldn't be the only one. There would be hundreds of people who, despite even opposition from their own family or within their own group, have persisted and gone ahead and erected unique ecologies which somebody's just waiting to get at to destroy. And it's not unusual. It's, in fact, I think it would be fairly usual for that because he was and is a successful sheep farmer. His family resented the fact that he departed from that model to risk some time in selection and growing on of walnuts, which are a long-term crop, and chestnuts. And now he's got, he's got there, but they've fought him for so long that they can't really be interested in it. Go and make him an offer. Just make any offer whatsoever. It'll be acceptable, providing he can get some money through to his uh, wife and child. <clears throat> because he would still, I think, you know, he said to me, well, I'll leave it to him because I've got nothing else to leave to him. Okay. Um, what are we going to do about these land access officers? I, I want to throw it open. I'll tell you something. We've only started to commence them. Debbie Gardner of the Permaculture Group in Adelaide has made it her hobby, although she wasn't originally involved, to look at the sort of ways in which land can be owned, the sort of legal strategies which we can put on land in terms of rights and agreements and, and joint ownership. And she, she would like to start one of these, but there isn't any model. Dennis McCarthy has announced a land access office in Perth. He's got his first customer. Uh, somebody said here, who was that? Yeah. Somebody sort of walked in and said, OK, I want access to land. Under what terms yet? I don't know. Yeah. Well, he started the Oxfam model. Yeah. Um, how would a land access office finance itself? It would have to be pretty actively involved. I think it wants... Let's try and work it out. 
it needs a place which is public and it needs some literature and it needs some PR. It needs brochures and it needs uh, some public relations. It needs some radio programs. No trouble whatsoever to get an FM program and sit down and carefully explain the strategy set which you prepare to open up. <clears throat> it needs around it, but not necessarily uh, making a living from it originally. I think it needs a lawyer to draw up standard agreements and to so that the access office can copy trust documents, it can copy joint and partnership agreements and leaseholds and have them available and have them individually negotiated. It needs, I think, a real estate person who knows about the restrictions on land sales and on, on undevelopmental uh, process because that doesn't affect our rights. Nobody puts restrictions on rights. Who else? I think it needs an entrepreneurial group, a group who are good at management and at financing systems, who can get out there and lay it out uh, for public. And of course, uh, you know, we need to be there. A good, a good group of designers to come in uh, when some of the complex systems start up. They seem to me to be the team. Any uh, thoughts on this from yeah, yourself? We've Maybe got the, uh, we'll call that entrepreneurial person, uh, financier. Uh, President, that role is very well played by merchant bankers in our society. It doesn't have to be a merchant banker. It can be um, a very competent businessman someone who knows how to get capital together around the project and to manage the capital <coughs> into the project and to sell the project if it's that sort of project, if it's a land rehabilitation or limited liability project. I'm not too sure that that team is any much different from the sort of team which we're going to have to develop uh, anyhow if we're going to have any part in land development in Australia or in America. At present, What's happening is this group is using this group and, and this group and, and we're not there. Therefore, I think it's pretty essential that this place is started by and basically run by the design group because at present they're always called in too late. They're called in after the mess is made, after the subdivision has been ruled up regardless of the land. They need to seize the initiative. We want to be in before the development begins. We want to be in at, at the choosing of the land for that particular client or that particular development. I keep saying to this German firm in Hamburg, you know, not only am I in here too late, but really there's no longer any place for me in design. Once you've ruled up a bit of coastline in in 500 foot strips, 200 feet wide, six miles inland, what in the hell can I do to help you? I can't even put a logical road into the situation. You know? if, if you can get in there before the land is purchased, if you can get in there in the selection of the land and then work out a scheme for that land, which will not be the same as it will even for the next patch of coast or whatever it is. Every German is heading for their own bit of Australian coast. 
and they've, they've bought, you know, hundreds and hundreds of linear miles of coast. Well, I mean, in Germany, the idea that you can buy a piece of coast and bush is right off the wall. They discovered that Australia lets you do it. So do the Japanese. I keep flying in. They say we got there too late. They say we didn't know that you would have helped us do this in an ecological fashion. The only people offering in Germany to sell us land are straight up developers. They're not necessarily crooks. Yes, you can advertise it in Europe. Land access offers can operate over... It's actually extremely beneficial if you can bring the right sort of people into a district under the right conditions. It's beneficial all around. You're looking at bringing in people who carry with them a tremendous number of industrial skills and entrepreneurial skills, which are really good to have in the district. In fact, uh, the next people moving to this town is a German architect and his wife, who are fully trained cabinet makers who teach cabinet making. Now, you couldn't ask for better people if you're looking at a forest gleaning situation. And they have the market in Germany for good furniture made out of, out of forest products. So they're the people you want in the place. So we need to set up the situation. Where do we need the offices? I think mainly in large uh, centres, in, in, in the cities and large towns. I think they would be valid on a part-time basis down to town sizes of even 14,000, 15,000 people. Because I think you can get entrepreneurial skills going uh, and use local resources out of towns down to quite small size. What if you have really good energy sites spotted around that town? Then you, you have something to develop. The only thing that uh, at present intrigues me is uh, how is that place going to support itself? What part does it have in the development? First of all, it can be the registered office and can be the, the servicing agency for all the clubs and groups, right? And it can offer shared facilities. It can offer the telex, photocopying, computer listings and accounting facilities. Uh, to all farm clubs, garden clubs, land access groups. And it needs to be there because it will see connections between those groups that they couldn't have seen unless they were using a common office, unless somebody knew what they were all up to. It can offer a town office and a telephone answering service. And that can be literally a separate line with its own recording service or it can offer a telephone finding service to all groups involved in land. So you can, you can take and give messages through this office. Yeah, we said it, computer listings of, of addresses. It can record exchange of shares and shareholdings. It can offer shares for sale and it can notify vacancies in clubs and it can make a charge for all those services based on the amount of money flowing through. And I think it should charge 4% on developmental and, and on transferring of shares and handling the share transfers. Would it be a good idea to incorporate the Earth Bank in that, uh, in that central system there? I think it would go in there whack over did. I think it would just absolutely sit in there like that, you know. I think, again, we're looking at something that would be really good. It can arrange the legal, the particular legal things on some share basis with a lawyer, some of which would be standard, almost self-service. You can have a standard rights agreement 
in which you could have also a set of standard alternative phrases built in. That the leasehold is for 30 years on payment of 10% of net profit. The leasehold is for 30 years, providing wallabies are kept satisfactorily under control, no charge will be made. You know, it can have a set of standard leaseholds, legal leaseholds, into which is slotted other statements that cover cases that have actually been covered. And this is a matter of skills, knowing what, after 10 cases, what differences occur in leases. So it can basically set up, and the lawyer simply gets the money for the lease registration, not for drawing up the lease or for drawing up the trust. Why should we pay a lawyer $1,500 every time we draw up a trust document? Why don't we have a set of standard forms that we put into the trust document? You can buy in the United States a book of trust documents which give you every possible sort of alternative statement in the book. <coughs> so it should be a quasi-legal service and for that it should charge and it can charge a really minor proportion. For a, a tailored trust document it can probably charge as little as $100. For one that already suits the purpose it can charge as little as $10. And for a brand new trust document, it can possibly draw it up, have a check by the lawyer for as little as $200. So it should offer services to clients. It can run some land access systems almost at no cost. And they are the intra-urban land exchange systems. Even there, it wouldn't hurt if it took out $5. Now, what else? This should be an institute structure. Why should it be an institute structure? Because the land access office should itself be able to accept gifts of land and capital. It should be of its own right a developmental agency. So it should have set up that first structure and the second structure. All its charges and things come under the second structure. All its wheeling, dealing, financing services, registration, and uh, introduction services. <clears throat> what else should it do? It should educate. And that comes out in its PR. Education is really paid public relations. If you go out and lecture to groups on what a land access office does, modest charges can be made. You can spend a happy weekend <coughs> with a group of concerned people and they will pay $20 to listen to what you've got to say. You can, set, you can help them set up satellite offices which have to have less services than you have in their own neighbourhoods. You can help them set up their own farm club. That can be neighbourhood uh, land access offices. To do that, you need to go out and talk to people for a few days and set up conveners of such places. They, they can be very modest and placed in homes, in streets, in single streets, in High-rise, we should target high-rise. We should target uh, house commission areas. These are the places that are really suffering today. In fact, I think, to some extent, they're murderous places. We should give the pe people the freedom to move so they feel free to operate on land. Its educational service um, should, should be money-making. All these should be money-making systems. Your real estate agent will, if he's a reasonable person, return 10% of fees to that office for every job that they do from the office. 
and they openly offer that to me. They also openly offer another interesting service which I want to tell you about. Any competent real estate agency, and I'm not talking about a small country one, I'm talking about a normal small town one, is basically a banking system. The real estate agent uh, can do two things at least and you must uh, ask them what else they can do. They can accept overseas money as indeed you can but they can often pay 15% on it which you normally can't get unless you're land banking. And uh, so they can stash overseas money into their operation and get the people 15% while you can access that money within one month, right? Now what does that mean? It means that if you are, uh, as you suggested, operating in Europe or Japan or Russia or somewhere and buying lands, you have on call uh, one or two million dollars held by a local real estate agent which can be placed on the land as soon as you see it. You can say, I'll secure it. Now, your real estate agent knows you're covered because he's holding the trust account. They can pay you uh, uh, this, and they may ask for that, and it's not unreasonable that you're not actually playing the whole real estate field, that you deal mainly with them as long as they're satisfactory. And you say, OK. Now, I believe in this. I believe if you've got a satisfactory lawyer, a satisfactory real estate agent, and a satisfactory entrepreneur, don't go shopping, stick with your team. Because if they're honest and upfront with you and doing a good job, what do you want to go swapping off for? You don't. And uh, to some extent, I go along with that, providing you made the choice of the agent and they didn't make a choice of you. They also have some managerial offers, which you may or may not want to use. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're going straight up into normal uh, enterprises like land stocking and that, they probably do fairly well with sheep and cattle. They have a profound knowledge of seasons and buying and selling livestock, which you shouldn't overlook. And they're likely to know local conditions inside out. That is, they are likely to know when to sell and when to buy and how to market and who transports material. So very few of you, I'm sure, realise the number of functions a small-town real estate agent carries. And uh, unless you get too small like Smithton, in which case he's your draper. But in uh, a small country town, uh, country town like Shepparton, the guy will often be, he'll often have a whole clutch of, of machinery that he's agent for, that he doesn't actually stock, but he can get for you. He's probably associated with a, uh, an auctioneering firm. If he's not the auctioneering firm, he probably runs it from his own office. So he's always buying and selling stock and goods, right? He's in the uh, marketing business himself. He's probably managing six or seven properties, and he knows something about those and their resources and can arrange rights for you over those properties. Um, he often carries esoteric lines of rural supplies. For instance, he's probably got bulk tea in nice boxes. <laughs> uh, all sorts of things that you never dreamt you could purchase. Uh, he's probably got special shearer's boots 
uh, comb replacements for shearers, all the sorts of things you really don't dream the guy is involved in. He's probably got all this in a small room at the back, and of course all farmers know he's got it, because all farmers deal with him, he knows all farmers. He can get uh, properties on the market better than you can. There are other agents for Wilbur Society as well. Yes, often enough. Uh, they're about their area all day in their cars. They know every back creek and road. They can, if you want to specify a property, they probably can, can think for a minute and tell you exactly where that sort of property lies. And uh, if you see a property that you want that's not on the market, they're probably more likely to get it on the market than you are, drifting in there looking like a typical hippie and saying to a prosperous farmer, I'd like to buy your land. They're very suspicious and doubtful that you can actually negotiate that at all. But their local friendly real estate agent can often get it on the market. And the other fantastic thing about that is they will sell to the real estate agent on the basis of present usage. He goes and does a deal, you know, and you get him to do this deal and instruct him, I want you to go out and assess how many sheep that place will carry, what's wrong with it, and he goes and kicks the fences, you know, pulls the sheep around and is doing the deal with the farmer on whether the place is lousy with fluke or not. Well, what you really want the bloody place for has got nothing to do with that. Now, if you told the farmer that you were going to build a cluster housing dwelling and run a uh, proud farm on it, he'd think, oh, well, these guys got lots of money. You know, they can afford to frig around with land. They can pay twice the price that they would if they were a sheep farmer complaining about the amount of fluke in the marsh. And it's true too. You always want to get a farmer to buy from a farmer. He'll always get it at half the price that you'll get it. Trotting out there in your patent leather boots. Well, sorry, your bare feet. <laughs> He'll sell you, you know, it'll cost you $5,000 to have bare feet. Or even $1,000 an acre. So your real estate guy is good. Your lawyer is very good. Your lawyer holds trust funds for investment on behalf of estates. He has to keep them busy. He's interested in putting them through a decent entrepreneurial business to actually develop property. If he's young and intelligent and lively and hasn't been streamlined too much into the business, he'll think of very devious ways to, cut, to get around local regulations. And he'll hold the wolves off you, you know, my lawyer says to me, give me 2,000 bucks, I'll hold them off you for 20 years. All he does is write stupid letters saying, you know, we do not acknowledge this, uh, you know, we've received your letter but we no way acknowledge it, you know, you offer no proof, so and so, and he can keep that going for 20 years. <laughs> well, that's their job, they're protecting their clients, not you, if you're not the client. Depends on which side of them you're on, but this is your lawyer, right? He's holding them off on your behalf. Entrepreneurs, the hardest group to reach. They um, two groups we find are available to us. One is retired people and one is active people part-time. It's no uh, laugh to say if you can get close to Robert Holmes at court, he would work for you part-time for a while. He would give you good advice. Yeah, an hour and a half for that guy, you know, every three months, you'd be better off than having uh, somebody who can't wheel and deal by you all the time. Retired people, often excellent. Uh, they have to be sure you're serious. Go to them and say, yeah, we are very serious about this and we want you to come out for a while and just steer us through 
the managerial aspects of the situation or the entrepreneurial aspects. And then they'll do an extremely good job and very likely uh, they may take a directorship for you off your hands because they know how to run those one-handed and all about meetings, lodgements, changes, stuff, this and that. And you don't give a damn who directs the trust, really. I mean, you might be interested in your local trust, but as far as other directors go, you're not really that concerned who they are. As long as they're very competent directors, they will administer the trust. And they're bound by the association? They're bound by the trust document, and also, if you've set up an association, they have, and those people really agree with what you're doing, and in discussion, they will join your association. They're bound by the same ethical situation as you are, and you just pull them up. The design group, we lack them. They're not thick on the ground. How many in total are there, Andrew, you know, in Australia, counting this group? 200, is there? 600 in total. Nevertheless, in that 600, uh, we have every talent that we need. And it won't be 600 forever. There'll be another 90 this coming 12 months. And you guys can start programming. We need, eventually, to spread the idea of good design far more widely than the permaculture consultancy. We need to go home and, and run weekends and give the ability to design more widely through the population. The more you give away, the more people will want you. And uh, then you can migrate to these better orders, I think, of organisation of land. land. Some of you may actually like to specialise in the same thing that Terry Molner does going to groups and helping them set up their legal and financial and land structures as a, as a packet. The land office really will migrate towards that sort of function. But then very valuable people. Where do we need to set them up? Urgently in all the capital cities. We've got no one in Melbourne. I think Allen's group is moving towards the land access system in Campbelltown and uh, we should keep contact with that. Uh, we can assist, and all designers can assist, in a peripheral capacity. That is, uh, we can keep you informed, and rapidly keep you informed, of land opportunities right here. Um, so if you get someone drift into your land access office and say, well, I was coming on the plane the other day, I met a guy, he said, um, what are you coming to Tasmania for? I said, well, I made an embarrassing amount of money on the stock exchange last week, in fact, $700,000 that I didn't want and I'm looking for a fish processing place and I said, well, I can help you. <laughs> of course I can help him. <laughs> you know, I can think of three straight away that were either derelict or, you know, going down and if he had $700,000 to put in, we could help him. Uh, he never contacted me again because I think I looked like a hippie. Uh, no, he did. He left me his card and said, OK, get in touch with me. Well, I thought, oh, damn it, what do I want to go look at this process from place for? Um, we often assess all the houses for sale here. Uh, we're pretty current with it at some time. We're fairly current with it present, I think, not too old, six months ago. We can quickly reach all the land and houses for sale in the district for you. And that's true of all designers. If this land access office has somebody wandering from Melbourne and say, look, uh, I want to uh, uh, get uh, to South Queensland because um, we like it up there and I want to be somewhere where, you know, I can make friends, just ring Max or the Nambour group and say, well, this guy's got 40,000 bucks. He wants to get up there and grow bananas, but really he's a cabinet maker. What could you suggest? 
and uh, you offer their services as a service through your office and they might come up with an excellent suggestion either as ownership or as rights or as co-owners or as uh, in a present development that they're, in, they're up to. So uh, you can use all other designers and that means internationally and uh, if you're offering a land access office team and you want to reach Europe, uh, you simply notify Berlin uh, who goes out to Europe uh, that you're now in the business of selling, uh, of negotiating land between Europe and Australia. Actually, an amazing thing happened recently in the common market, which I thought was extremely amusing. The uh, common market opened up and Ireland did very well out of it, relatively, and so did Spain, uh, Italy, because there was a lot of poor people with very good products, and suddenly they had this whole market to develop in. And the Irish dairy farmer and, and uh, hog farmer who's really a, a, a real specialist, um, began to get rather rich. So the English, who were going downhill, the English farmers, thought that Ireland would be a damn good place because the Irish farmers' uh, affluence was increasing to buy land. So the, the English uh, bought Irish farms. Now the Irish knew that their farms were inherently rather poor. They are acidic and uh, often very thin soils meaning very careful management. However, the English were paying them $4,000 an acre. So they put their heads together, took the money, and bought English farms. <laughs> and they did it like that. And they did it fast, and before the English knew it was happening, the Irish owned most of the good land in England, and had transferred their careful operations onto good land, and were sitting pretty and laughing. And the English were stuck out in the bogs. <laughs> no joke it happened faster than you could say you know and of course the word spread around Ireland fast you know they were going to buy in here at $4,000 you can sell them a bit of rock and heather for 4000 bucks an acre and we can get excellent land there for $3,000 an acre let's get out of this bog uh, a lot of them took their money and came to Australia so because you know we can own 40 acres here at 4,000 acre is uh, uh, $160,000. Jesus, uh, we can buy uh, 500 square miles of Mr. Australia. That let's go. <laughs> so a lot of them did that too. <coughs> the Irish quickly bailed out of Ireland, which is a hard place to make a living, and left the English uh, with it, or with a lot of it. We also then want to look for a real opportunity uh, in land. You're all from every state of Australia, I think. I think you would all um, get quite an interested group together in your district uh, apropos of this set of strategies and uh, could start modestly to operate them. You may strike particular problems in that you, nobody wants land in Australia. Uh, all they want is garden clubs or farm clubs. And uh, you may not. And some of your, act, your strategies may operate very effectively. And what I look upon the whole deal is, is us creating our own work. Way back there in sort of 76, I'd lay awake at night sort of looking at the ceiling. And I think, well, first of all, we have to get the troops on deck. We have to find and train and get people anxious to make a change. When we've got the troops on deck, we have to find the work for them. So about 12 months ago, 
we decided we had enough troops. We sort of set it at 700, and I always think I've got 700 even when I've got 300, don't I? I said, we've got 700 this year, haven't we, Andrew? And he tots them up on the computer. He says, no, it's 392. So I figured if we had 700, we had the same number of people out in consultancy as the World Bank and United Nations combined. So I figured that's time for us to start to make work like the World Bank makes work. So when I thought that we had 700, we were actually at 402 or something, I started to float the Earth Bank concept. I think this is integral to it, the land access offers. And I think the land access offers will give you the moral capital to go to Earth Bank. First time we started to talk about it, half the gardeners got up and left the course, I think. What are we doing talking about institutes, legal systems, real estate and entrepreneurs? We are pure. All we do is produce apple with a worm in them. Well, I think that's faintly ridiculous. We're not here uh, just to be gardeners, and if you're just a gardener, I think you've got your head in the sand and your bum in the air, and someone's going to kick it. And um, who's going to kick it is going to be the person who's handling the seed, handling the finance, and really running the district, and uh, often only for profit. So we ought to start moving in on them. Land access officers, I'm sure, 2WJ or somebody as soon as Allen's group is ready to go at Campbelltown will put on an hour-long program that will go nationally <coughs> and if you then set them up you've already got a prepared system. Now I don't ask you individually to set them up, I think it's too much to ask of you. What I do ask is that you start to convene groups locally with a view of setting up land access offices in your region. Perhaps your most effective skill is to find the people who want to do the job. I think it's been said of all successful entrepreneurs that their real skill is in getting out into the population and finding people who are good at doing the job. And I think that may be my best skill. I'm not going to say I can't design and do good tree work, I can. But I think maybe uh, my highest level of skill is to find people who will do uh, good work in their own district and it's obviously transparently obvious to us that we can't do anything significant. We, all we can do is to find people who can help us do something significant. Individually we can't do a great deal. So I found Andrew. See? <laughs> so if you find somebody who wants to do a job that really suits them and they're good at it, that's great. So the way to find them is by getting out and throwing the idea out and then saying, will you, will anyone here convene such a group? And then you announce the name of the convener and go on educating other people and say, well, there's somebody convening group with this interest to set up this office in your district. And that is Alan or somebody, right? And then what you must stress with all these systems is the first people who you want around the land access office are people who are prepared to put into it, not take from it. It's very interesting, the first time we set up an institute, and we were offered an awful lot of land. I think Jim Cairns was trying to throw land at us because people were throwing it at Jim Cairns. And, and all the people who came to the institute said, oh, you're getting land given to you? Good, we want land. See? And that's the last person you want to see at that point in your history because you don't know how to handle the acceptance of land, let alone how to get it out at that point. 
what you want in your office is people who are prepared to help you get land in. And it's the same with the early start on a land access office. You should stress that what you want are people who can find these people to help the office, not people who themselves want land access at that point. So your initial few months is in helping the office get going, not uh, getting land out. I would also give you some individual advice. If you don't have land and if you don't have capital, the way to get it is not to wait for someone to start a system, but to make it your job to start up an institute or start up a financial system. As a byproduct of that, you will get your land and you will get your capital. Once that facility exists, you can use it. But your first job is not to go chase it. As soon as you start uh, even a minor export, you'll have a thousand people offering to be agents. You should gather them in one room, charge them $10 and teach them how to start export. Where are we going to put it? Social welfare groups generally, as a bracket name, uh, often already have offices. Um, sometimes rent-free, sometimes open, and food cooperatives as a group also have and both have a large clientele coming and going. They already have an enrolment. <clears throat> it's probably better where it was put in Massachusetts was in the food cooperatives. They were already well established, they had some extra space, very little space is needed, for a land access office. They realised it was a service to customers and it would increase the facility of the food co-op no in because it meant increased food production and increase of people interested in buying food. Besides, most people who start food co-ops have a pretty strong social conscience. That's why they start a food co-op. So if you have a food co-op, it would seem a nice place to put it. If you have a social welfare group, in a depressed suburb, you'll often find that the government or some volunteer group has a house in that suburb from which they offer counselling services to uh, people who have too much valium deficiency. Now, you can often place a satellite land access office on a part-time basis or with somebody in that counselling service. All your counselling services should be informed in any case that you have this land access office and they should be clear about what it will do because mainly what community centres and community councillors do is collect literature from operational and functional bodies who are offering something for the local group. They collect from educational groups, they tell you you can have an adult education program, you can have a permaculture training course, they offer it through the community group. It may sometimes be possible to actually place the office within the context of that system. It's quite probable that some homes would be quite successful. If you have a truly sympathetic real estate person, they may host it on a very low rental basis or by some to and fro between this 10% your rental. Any other brilliant ideas? Environment centres would be excellent places providing they're a little bit pure and uh, don't like to see wheeling and dealing going on because, God almighty, you might be actually going into the hills 
uh, and getting grants of land with you know, environmentally sensitive orchids on it. Isn't it? Eventually, I think, if you started, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet that one of the things you'll get is an urban property gifted to you and you're in your own offices. I don't think there's any doubt about that. In fact, if you make a loud enough noise on 2JJ, you probably have offices in most suburbs gifted. Because there are a lot of people with good heart, have property, they say, oh well, I've owned this place in Redfin for a long time, I haven't really known what to do with it, all I'm doing is renting it, I feel a bit guilty of renting it. I think I'll give it to this group because I've got an institute structure and I'll get at least some moral capital out of it. And it's quite probable you'll end up by getting offices given to you, even if they're rather weird. Yes, I think a good credit union would be an excellent place too because almost straight away you've put yourself in the banking area and the credit union benefits greatly. In fact, the members of land access office scheme should form a credit union anyhow. And it's one of the things that ought to run out of here because it's your first step towards the Earth Bank. Now that credit union is not a consumer credit union, it's a developmental credit union to help you build houses, insulate them, get land, get food. It's not to buy, buy Mercedes-Benz. So some quiet discussion with groups will probably get you squeezed in with them until you get organised. Dennis has got an office anyhow. Could be, providing you've got also got an office. No. Yeah, no, a fixed place. So you're going to have to register businesses and things. So you're going to have to have a place by law in which the things have an address. You're going to have to have an address. It doesn't really matter whether it's your kitchen. I'm amazed at how much community bioregional associations are run out of, literally out of kitchens in, in America. They just don't make any fuss about uh, having a bench in the kitchen, which is the share program, you know. So I, <laughs> I went to visit the share program group in Appalachia and said, well, where, where, where do you run the share program from? And I was having a cup of tea here and I said, that's the share program. And you look around the back and here are files and cabinets in here. It's in the kitchen. It's no great fuss effort. As long as you're running it and it has a phone number and an address, it can be anywhere. It can have a telex and a computer too if you want it. It's not a very big spatial organisation for information. And, they said, and upstairs is the EF Shoemaker Society and that's a table at the foot of their bed. And that's what it was. It was a, a very small house, self-built, on land trust property, built by a, a joint home builders association. The EF Shoemaker Society was upstairs and the share program was downstairs. I mean, I mean let's not think, we, we shouldn't think of these things as having uh, big fronts on them, you know, with land access office and busy secretaries coming and going in high heels. It's not, <laughs> it's not that sort of deal. Well, well, Alan, you can make one like that. 